Of course, if it were up to me, uh, we'd be crowd surfing them out, you know, as a liturgical action of lifting them up to the Lord instead of just surround them in prayer, you know, just let's do a crowd, well, maybe someday, I don't know. Not going to be a funny one today, I guess. <laughs> Here we are, 4 o'clock in the afternoon at a church. I don't want to go to a church that doesn't get inconvenienced by the life and vibrance of the city. I mean, there's a lot of times in life where the temptation is for us to go off and create a perfect environment for us to have our perfect life. And I kind of like, I guess I kind of just like real life too much. I am enchanted with the real salty uh, drama of life than, you know, to trade. I mean, I love that people wanted to do a foot race today and... We couldn't come to this building until later and that we're all here and, uh, you know, that's just the way I am, though. One time I was preaching a sermon at the bank of uh, Lake Michigan and I was getting all into it. And it was about to be this, like, step into the water moment for an altar call. And then instead somebody stood up and said, how about we throw you in the water instead? I don't know where that came from. I don't know how. It's just like, okay, this is how it's going to be. That's how real life is, though. You know, not everything is perfect. And so here we are on a, a Sunday evening or afternoon, mid-evening, nap time, time, to, uh, having, having a service together. Thanks for coming. My name is Dan Mike. And um, I'm a college and young adults pastor here at Crossroads. And so if you're new... And I, I only say this because it's notable. If you're a college student, you're here, uh, or maybe you tried to come the first two times that there's cookouts outside, and then, you know, you're not really sure how this whole thing works or whatever. It's fine. You know, you got a guy. You could come and talk to me about how frustrated you are about the schedule of this church and all that or whatever. I'll be there for you. If you're just a young adult in general, you're not part of college or anything like that, I want you to know you got a guy. I like saying that because I like, you know, it's a joy in life when you got a guy. When you need somebody, he needs drywall work done, you need to have a guy. When you get plumbing, he needs to be done, you need to have a guy. When you need to get married or something, who are you going to call? You need to have a guy for that. I'm the guy, I'll be your guy for that. That's pretty much all I do here is weddings. And so I'm good with that. I'm good with being the weddings pastor. Uh, young adults are the ones who are getting married. So I'm happy to be there. But if you're not uh, a young adult or a college student or listening to any of that stuff and you're just a regular person, I want to welcome you to Crossroads. If you're new, um, well, yeah, a new person came in the 4 o'clock service. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, all of you are the diehard Crossroads fan that know uh, who I am. So hi, good to see you again. And of course, you know it's customary for us to study the Bible together at this time. And so if you don't have a Bible like me, find one laying around. Um, I'm going to turn to John chapter 3. And, uh, of course, we don't study the Bible arbitrarily, but we're seeking out the gospel. We want to open our hearts up to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, please turn to John chapter 3. I'll read from that in like 10 or 15 minutes because I have a lot of introductory notes to say. But I won't forget, I promise. I partially have some introduction to do because, um... We're in a season change right now, and season change is always notable. Who's excited for the fall? Wow, yes, even in the afternoon, you're still able to be excited about something so beautiful as denim jackets, flannel shirts, bonfires. Anybody in here shopping for fall boots? You know who you are. 
I'm okay with that. Changing your hair color, a little darker, trying to embrace the autumn colors a little more, getting the blankets out. Any Starbucks fans in the house? If I say the letters PSL, what does that mean to you? Pumpkin spice latte, baby. I know, it's coming right now. I promise you, I never crave donuts in my life. I don't care. I can drive by Krispy Kreme with the light on and with the sign. I don't, I don't stop. But I become a maniac during September and October about when Robinettes rolls out those donuts that are cinnamon, sugar, pumpkin, whatever they're made out of, absolute depravity um, and gluten. I can't stop eating those. A lot of parents sending, sending uh, what, what feels to you like your newborn baby off to college. Uh, you know, like how, how did my baby grow up so fast and now is uh, slamming the dorm room door in my face while I'm still waving and wondering what's going on. You know, my heart goes out to you. My heart goes out to students even now who, when I describe all of these things, get these feelings of like needles in your stomach because you know all these are also signs that you have a lot of work to do and that school is about to start and it's going to, and summer is over. And what, have I, what have I told you that all the season change and all the joy and the feelings that we get about um, the life that we live here, that that stuff's not lost on God. That that feeling, and that that's, that that's okay, and that God actually wants to em embrace the season change. And he has things that he has planned for us to think about at season change. In the Bible, there is a little bit of a liturgical cadence. There is a calendar that God set up that we should think about things in, in certain times of year. If you want to read about this, you have to turn to the book of Leviticus, not right now, but Leviticus, and actually, yes, I did mean that, Leviticus. Leviticus 23 uh, tells you all about the annual calendar of the Feast of the Lord that he calls appointed times. And at these appointed times, like in the spring, he wants us to be thinking about things like unleavened bread and the, and, and the terror of gluten or whatever that means for unleavened bread or, or, or the Passover or, you know, the first fruits, right? I mean, these are beautiful things that we can learn so much about who Christ is and about who God is. The summer feast, you know, Shavuot, the Pentecost, right, where the word of God and the spirit of God are put on display. And then here we are in the fall, saturated with, with, the, with the vibrance of the fall feast themes. We study these, not because we're the church that says you've got to do the feast stuff in order to be a, a, an elite Christian or a, an okay Christian or anything like that. We're the church that says we think that God is wise and that he meant it when he said this shall be a lasting ordinance or, or that he meant something by this shall be a lasting ordinance and that he set this up on purpose. We also believe that in the feasts, there's unbelievable amount of of messages about who Christ is, about the gospel, and about how God views us, and the things that he cares about. So in this week and next week, we're going to have our tenor and tone saturated with uh, thoughtfulness towards the fall feast, partially because we're right in the middle of some. Next week, Rod is going to share on the Feast of Booths, 
Sukkot is what it's called. It's my favorite because it's God's feast about camping. Family camp, you know, that's what I grew up with. I want to go camping. Thank you, Lord. Uh, and so this week, though, we're right in the middle of something called the 10 Days of Awe. Last Monday, you might have seen on your, uh, your Apple calendar or whatever, I don't know how you have that set up, Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, it, it coincides with the Feast of Trumpets. Feast of Trumpets, if you read Levit Leviticus 23, starts up a 10-day period where like this coming Thursday, that 10-day period is culminated in something called Yom Kippur. And that 10-day period, the days of awe, or the high holy days, is a day for people to constantly be self-evaluating, for to start thinking about who they really are before the Lord, to actually start to deal with some things that they've done or left undone or relationships that are broken. Because Yom Kippur sounds cool in Hebrew, but what it means in English is the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement sounds heavy because it is heavy. It deals with atonement for sin. This is the most sacred of all of the, uh, of the feasts of the Lord because this is dealing with something that is so unbelievably significant. I mean, this was the one where Aaron and them were only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies one day of year on this day. And you know how serious he took it? He put a bell on his ankle and a rope around his waist just in case uh, they, th that he would die after he went behind that curtain. They would be able to pull him out. He'd take blood with him. Not because God's obsessed with blood of bulls and goats, but because God wants to set up a value system for us to understand how, how significant sin is. How important is blood? It's not trivial. It's not something that we just think, well, it doesn't really matter. If you don't have blood, you don't have life. This is a life or death topic. People have been taking this topic serious for thousands of years. And any voice that tells you nowadays, we don't talk about sin. We don't think sin's a big deal. It doesn't really matter. That voice that tries to minimize this thing that God says, this is as important as blood, is leading you astray. And don't apologize to them for the thousands of years of people who are trying to figure this out. Because there is turmoil inside of people. And, there, and, we're, and not just Christians, but a lot of people are trying to figure out how to get peace for the, for, because of their past. Or peace because of their present. Or peace because of things that they've been involved with. And how do we do this? And the plot thickens. When I went to uh, live in Jerusalem for a little while, I saw how serious um, the people of Israel took the high holy days. So I was there for the, the fall. And it did convict me to think, why, do, why am I so cavalier? How have I become so casual with things that make my life so miserable and unhealthy or, or things that God takes so seriously. And I found myself kind of on a pendulum um, because I don't know if you know the other side of casual, but it's absolute legalistic or, 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 or to, you know, putting tons of effort into it. Uh, maybe that's some sort of contrast that I put myself into, but let me put it this way. I was born on a Sunday morning. 
And my dad preached a sermon after I was born still. That's, okay. That's where I'm coming from. That's the family I'm living in. Okay, we're pretty serious about the Christian thing here, right? I mean, he's not going to take a Sunday morning off when his beautiful favorite child was born. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is my life. I mean, have, I, I didn't really identify with the book The Pilgrim's Progress that much, you know, the most famous allegory of all time, right? I, I actually was like, well, I've never left the city of destruction to go to this celestial city. I, I don't know who that is. That's like a first-generation perspective. I'm like a 30th-generation Christian. When I read the book, The Pilgrim's Regress by C.S. Lewis, and I saw the struggle between the character who was the steward, who had to follow the rules of the landlord, and he has this list of rules that he can never quite match up with. He gets frustrated and, and throws the list down on the ground, but then notices on the back there's fine print. And there's even more rules that he never knew were even there and that he could never actually do. He, he breaks them all the time. That book spoke to me. Because when I think of sin, I think of all, all the stuff that, that I do on a regular basis. I, 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 there is a struggle and a tendency for me to want to just sort of manage that and actually just become really obsessed with the external battle of sin. That's kind of what's on my heart to talk to you about this afternoon. Have you ever heard the term managing, managed sin? There's a lot of pressure nowadays to, to take something that's internal and actually just fix it external. If I can manage to just stop doing this thing, then I'm fine. I'm going to be okay. There's so much external in our culture right now that we're, we almost don't even realize it anymore. Somebody desires an internal beauty, what are they going to do? As much external beauty as possible that maybe it'll somehow work its way in there. Somebody wants to be, uh, to have love. What do we do? As much finding of the external versions of love as possible that maybe it'll somehow work out my internal need. What happens when, when, when we, as Christians even, say, let's focus on the external? We become really good at doing the Christian thing, the worship thing, the prayer thing, the sermon thing, the Bible thing. And it, and it looks good a lot of times on the outside, but on the inside, it's loneliness, it's disillusion, it's, it's something that's uh, not really making sense. There's turmoil there. And, and that house is built not just for young Christians. That house is built sometimes for 30 or 40 years. Reason why I chose John chapter 3, because I'm well aware that it's the most famous Bible verse of all time in there. But I also am well aware that we think that this Bible verse has an age limit. Four or five years old, that's all who, who gets to, to read John 3.16. But Jesus is looking at somebody who says, I've been a part of the religious system. I've been a part of all the Yom Kippur stuff or whatever feast you want to talk about my whole life. And I'm standing before Jesus at night, and I need some, I need some answers. He says John 3.16 to a sage, to an older person, an elder of Israel, who, who, who is standing there not because he's got it all figured out, but because he really needs Jesus to speak to him. So I want to hear a little bit of the tenor of what Jesus is talking about with this guy. Because it's a critical conversation about moving someone away from all the external stuff to somehow having something happen internally. So if you're with me, 
thousand years later. Let's, uh, sorry, that was a little bit of a rant. Let's uh, read the Bible together. Please stand with me if you will. I'm going to read out loud John chapter 3 um, and verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with them. In reply, Jesus declared, Truly I say unto you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. How can a man be born again when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter again into his mother's womb a second time be born. And Jesus said, Truly I say unto you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How? How can this be, Nicodemus said? You're the teacher of Israel. You do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know. We testify of what we have seen, but still, you people do not accept my testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Nobody's ever gone to heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In this way, God loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. It's the very words of God. Amen. Bank on it. All right. I'll keep this short. John, uh, John thoughtfully wrote this uh, letter. It's beautiful. My favorite book of the Bible. And uh, John writes chapter 2, proceeding chapter 3, assumedly on purpose. Okay, so what happened in chapter 2? Chapter 2 are two major events um, that John shows us about Jesus. Number one, a wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine. You got to remember, Israel is the size of New Jersey, okay? The, the news travels fast, especially in the Middle East. In, and I'm sure if Nicodemus wasn't a part of that wedding in some way or if it was his cousin or something, I mean... You know, everybody's related over there. Uh, that he would have heard about this heretic who filled these stone jars that were meant for ritual washings, mikvah jars full of wine. Now, I preached on the water to wine only a few months ago, and I tried to get the baptism tank full of two hearted to illustrate this. We just didn't, we just didn't have enough time, you know? But I, I think that uh, it would illustrate the. The, the contrast here a little bit of, of how if somebody who was uh, super religious would see this and think, I don't even know, is this, who does this guy think he is? Is this wine kosher? The Gentile feet stomp on these grapes that we poured into our sacred things. The second thing that happens in chapter 2 is Jesus makes a splash at the temple in Jerusalem. He's in Luke 
making a whip together and whipping people. I don't know how that fits into this, but he's kicking tables off. He's pushing people out of there. He's saying, uh, you know, he, he's saying, I'm consumed with zeal. We just say he was crazy mad at everybody who um, was gouging prices for things that poor people needed in order to be worshipped or to, to worship essential things. I mean, think about it. If Will was to print off all the words for the, for the songs and then pass them out only if you had a $50 bill, you know, we just need to read this, you know, and he, he's, he's making it difficult for us to be able to, to read the songs and pray with him. Uh, this would be frustrating. Sometimes I wonder if Nicodemus was there. Remember chapter 19 of John, Nicodemus is at the burial of Christ with 75 pounds of spices. There's no Costco in Jerusalem, people. Where is he getting all this stuff? I mean, maybe he's got a business. I don't know where he's selling uh, the spices and... Maybe he had this side hustle going in the temple. I mean, maybe some sort of trade situation going on there. Did he have a table that was knocked over by Jesus? Is he angry? Is he intrigued? Why does he go to Jesus at night? And Nicodemus has a lot to lose. I mean, maybe he's saying it like a servant. Go, go see where Jesus is. I want to run into him. I want to talk to him. I have some questions, you know. And, the servant comes back. He's like, well, today at 1130, he was uh, hanging out at a brothel. Um, at 1230, he came out of the bar with the drunks and the gluttons. Uh, at 3.30, we saw him with a leper. I don't know what he was doing, but it seemed a little weird. At 4.30, he's got people coming in through the ceiling who are wounded. And, and at 5.30, he's talking to all kinds of sinners and tax collectors and who knows what they're doing. And it's like, okay, uh, can we find a private place at night where I'm not going to lose all my credibility if I end up, you know, not liking who this guy is. I mean, Nicodemus has a lot to lose. Well, let's look at the card that he plays at first. What's he saying in verse 2? It's either 2 or 3. He says, um, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God because no one could do these miraculous signs if God were not with him. This tells us a little bit about Nicodemus' assumption Especially in the response. Jesus isn't really all that great at small talk, is he, right? I mean, <laughs> seems like Nicodemus just sort of throwing it out there. Hey, man, I know you're legit, right? You know, you and me both. And then all of a sudden, he, uh, he comes at him with this verse in three here of, look, nobody can see the kingdom of God unless they've been born again. Whoa! <laughs> Jeez. What do you mean by that? Some you can't see. That's the first thing he says there. You can't see. You think you can see, but you can't see. Nobody can see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Don't make judgments about me based on what you can see. You see the signs that I'm doing. You think that I'm from God. You think you know what's going on. You can't see unless you've been born again. And I tell you, it's the same thing nowadays. If you, if you spend your life trying to make judgments about Jesus... Just by what you can see, you're never going to arrive at the full conclusion of who he is. You're going to say, yeah, maybe a higher consciousness. Maybe somebody who is ahead of the game on how we should treat people on social justice issues. Maybe he's somebody who uh, is just a really great teacher. And I like the parables and I like the stuff that he says. And, and he was controversial and subversive. I hear a lot of that stuff. 
But you're never going to see who he really is unless you've been born again. Unless you get beyond the external stuff and get an internal work that's going on. That needs to happen. You can't see it. And Nicodemus has a lot he can see. Verse 1, what does it say? He is a part of the Sanhedrin. That's one of 70 out of, out of thousands of people. That's visible. Verse, I think it's either 8 or 10. He says, you're the ruler or the, the, um, the teacher of Israel. Okay, this is visible. The teacher of Israel. John Piper. He's visible. He's in a visible role. People can see him. you got to get beyond the sight of the external thing. And that's why he has a problem with this born-again business. It pokes a couple different places for Nicodemus. I mean, even literal. If you just see it literally. He's going to talk about... We talk about me being born again. I've been born. I'm a, I'm a part of the chosen race. Race meant a lot back then. Just joking. It means a lot now. Um, just seeing if you're paying attention. Part of the race. I'm a part. I don't need to be born again. I was born right the first time. I'm not going to go back to my mother's womb. I've, I've been born Israel. I am Israel. So poke a little bit of, of his pride. Of what you can see, you can see. Can you see? I'm Israel. What are you talking about being born again? Being born again also is a term in the Jewish Bible that was pronounced over somebody who went through a, a process of of being converted. If, uh, if you were a Gentile, You'd go through a long and arduous process of learning all the doctrines and things that uh, the Jewish people believed. And then you would go into this ceremony where you would be fully immersed in water. Kind of like baptism. Kind of like what we do. We would do baptism. He, you come out of the water. And then uh, there is a pronouncement over you that you have just been born again. Fully Jew. Fully Israel. Spiritual. Legal. It's all there. Even though it's not there externally. I think it's brilliant that Jesus brings this up. Looking at somebody who, who's so inundated with visual, he says, no, 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 you gotta be, you got to be born again or you're not going to see the kingdom of God. Really? Why, why do I need to go through that process? I'm not a Gentile. I don't need to, I am already good. Look at me. Flesh gives birth to flesh, right? But spirit gives birth to spirit. A man must be born of water and of spirit. Not just water. It's not just about the baptism thing, right? We know this. When we ba get baptized here, there's no magic in the water. But there's something inside that's going on that the outside is, is, is illustrating. you got to be born again on the inside, born of the water and of the spirit. That's how you get born again. You know what it's like? He says, it's like the wind. <laughs> okay, try and be all visual with the wind. You can't see it. You feel it. It's around you. It's, it's a part of what's going on. It's undeniable. It's strong. But you can't see this. we got to move beyond the sight. Dragging Nicodemus along in this conversation, kicking and screaming with all of his, how can this be? How can this be? Nicodemus is inundated in a culture of visual. 
Glad it's something that we don't struggle with nowadays. Imagine living life back then, your talit and your, your, your tassels and everything is telling people just by visual whose tribe you're a part of, you know, what, what you're, you know, where you're coming from, what team that you're on, especially if, if it had like, um, like a yellow M or a green S. Of course, you could tell what, uh, what rabbi that they were following because of the prayer boxes they would tie to their wrists. What they're made of. Is it gold, silver, olive wood? What's inside of it? Who blessed it? Is it Apple or is it Android or is it Casio? If you're a student of the Sermon on the Mount, you can see Jesus getting riled up in this, basically the entire chapter in chapter 6. Don't worry about your clothes, what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. You got to get, you got to worry about the kingdom of God and, and, and all that other stuff's going to figure it st itself out. When you give, when you give to the poor, don't be like the person who's being all showy about it. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, don't be like the person who prays standing on the street corner saying, look at how good of a prayer person I am. Pray in private. Don't look for your rewards external. Look for your reward internal. When you fast, don't post about it on Instagram so that everybody can see. Fast in private. Because this is something to do with an internal thing. And it's not just external. If we don't get beyond the external, Jesus has a term for this person. A whitewashed tomb. I don't want to see a bunch of whitewashed tombs in my family here at Crossroads. Especially after, uh, you know, weekends like last weekend with City Fest where a lot of people are coming to know the Lord or, or re-upping on their faith. Are we going to be a people who says, you know what we're about? We're about the outside. You've got to look and be and act a certain way to fit in around here. You must behave a certain way in order for you to belong in this family. You better figure that out quick. I don't want to live in a world, uh, or I don't want to be a part of a, of a team who says our value is washing the outside of the cup while the inside is full of unclean darkness. I want to be a people who said we believe that even though the tomb has deadness inside of it, that there is a God who says, Lazarus, come out. And he can raise us to life. He can bring life all, of all the deadness that's within us. He will do that if we let him. Regardless of how the tomb looks, this is, how we, this is how we value being born again. He goes on, verse 13, 14, and 15, starts talking about this snake thing. I'm wrapping it up soon, don't worry. Doing this snake thing. Why is Jesus doing a snake thing? We don't like that. We want the lamb thing. We like the lamb stories. Should he know by now? We don't need a snake story. I hate snakes. Well, I, I don't hate them that much, but they're kind of, it's not really my thing. I was in the crawl space of my house recently. There was a snake skin right, you know, next to my face. I didn't see it right away. And I'm thinking, where's the snake at? I mean, <laughs> This is the domain of the snake. I can't slither in here. This is not fair. 
What does he mean by the story of the snake, Why the serpent lifted up on the pole? This comes from the book of Numbers in chapter 21. The story is that Israel, the children of Israel are in the wilderness and they have some real internal issues. They keep holding resentment and grudges against God. They keep blaming him for all the problems that they have and every time, and they're just letting that fester. They're letting that infect their, uh, their, their culture and their families. And so God in a way sends a parable. God in a way sends them a message through, the, through a plague. And the plague is venomous snakes. The snakes bite people and they start to get infected. And then God's idea is for Moses to make a snake out of a bronze and, and walk around the camp and say, look, anybody who looks at this will be cured, will be healed from the venom. So Jesus brings this up. This is why I want to talk about this on a week where we're thinking about the Day of Atonement. He brings up the snake thing. If he was to bring up the lamb thing, we could talk about this on a Passover time. Why? Because there's a difference between looking at a lamb that's pure and spotless and looking at a snake. If I was to look up and see the lamb who is pure and spotless, I'd be, I'd be looking up and saying, you know what, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for doing that for me. You're perfect. You're the beautiful, perfect lamb of God. Not me. <laughs> If I see a snake up there that represents the venom that's inside of me, I have to, in humility, actually look up and say, yep, that's me. That's my problem. It's not his problem. That's my problem. I have the, I have the venom. So, so atonement vibes here in the sermon. Uh, what I want you to think about is atonement is two sides of a coin. One is, you have to actually say, I've been bitten by the snake. You have to actually admit, I have venom in me. And it's never an unhealthy thing to actually take some time and, and evaluate yourself. Have I been letting myself uh, get bitten by a snake and, and get full of poison and, and letting it go out of control? I mean, if God put this Day of Atonement fees once a year, at least once a year, at least once a year, can we think, hey, do I have something I need to deal with? I mean, imagine if you were following Moses around and you had been bitten, but you were from West Michigan or whatever. You're, you know, you're from a place that's very, uh, you know, externally shiny and beautiful. Um, you're like bitten by the snake and, and, and you're like, Moses, I, I, I don't even I wasn't bitten by the snake. Maybe once when I was a kid, but I, I, I haven't been, been bitten by a snake in 20 years. I haven't been bitten by, uh, uh, you, you put your pant leg down and, and it's covering up the bite. And you're like, uh, Moses, I haven't been bit by the snake. I'll help you. I, I can carry that a little bit too. Maybe I could be a volunteer today. Uh, you know, I, uh, volunteers have never been bitten by snakes, don't you know? Maybe I can preach a sermon later. I've never been bitten by a snake. I don't have the venom in me. Put a little makeup on it. Put a little more clothes on it. Put a little mask on. Make sure that nobody can see that there's all kinds of venom coursing through the body. Starts with looking up and seeing the snake and saying, I need to look. I need to be healed. I have a problem. That's my problem. When we look up at Christ crucified, hanging on the cross, we look up and see my problem. 
And he's more than willing to say, yeah, I know this is your problem. I know that it's not me that did this. I did nothing wrong. But I'm here for you. I want to heal you. I want to be a part of atoning for your sins. 1 John 4, 16. This is how we know what love is. Not that we did anything to love God, but that he sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And on the cross, you said, this is atonement. I'm doing this for you to get the venom out of you. Which leads me to the other side of that coin. For those of you who do look up to the cross, you do look up to the serpent on the pole, you do receive that healing. I was just a cursory reading of uh, the, the Hebrew usage of this word in the Old Testament, five times at least. It's not translated atonement. The word of atonement was translated as forgiven. Did you know that a part of atoning is to be forgiven? To be healed. I read a scholar this week who said the West is obsessed with the first half of atonement. We're obsessed with the sin thing. And we, 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 we talk about it all the time and bash ourselves down. But we won't allow ourselves to actually say, I receive the forgiveness. We're going to be a people who think about the day of atonement. Then we're going to be a people who think about the other side of being atoned. Where the verdict is said over you, not guilty. Where the last word over your life is, is still spoken, that, that, that forgiveness is there for you. If you want to be obsessed about something, let's be obsessed about that. Let's be obsessed about the, 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 the possibility that everybody that you're looking at, that there's forgiveness for them. Let's be a people who go around and confirm that. And instead of what... Uh, people in the Middle East are doing this week and frantically calling everybody that they've ever hurt so that their sins can be atoned and crossed out of the, the big book in the sky. Let's be a people who this week say, actually, I want to communicate above and beyond the forgiveness that people have through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. This is what 1 Peter 3.18 means when it says that he once and for all put to death sin, exchanging the righteous for the unrighteous and bringing us to God. That through that atonement sacrifice, he has brought us to God. That we now, because of the blood of Christ, don't have to wait for Aaron to go on the other side of the curtain. It ripped and we can boldly approach the throne of mercy because of his sacrifice. And we can say, thank you, I have this forgiveness. We can look in the mirror and say, you are forgiven. We can look at our parents and say, you are forgiven. You can look at your spouse and people who have hurt you, who are close to you, and people who have hurt you, who are far from you, and saying, I'm not just about external stuff anymore. I'm about internal. And I believe internally you have everything that you need in order to be right with God. I'm going to believe you into that space if I have to. Because anybody who looks up to the serpent lifted up, will have eternal life. For in this way, God loved the world. He gave his only son so that whoever believed in him would have eternal life. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. Are you with me? Let's pray about it. Let's think about it. Father in heaven, give us the courage to be able to look up Look up to you. Maybe we've done it once, maybe a million times. And we need to look up and say, heal me. Show me where the venom is. Show me where I was bitten. And heal me from all the drama that's inside of me. 
Give us the, uh, the freedom let us, to let go of the external stuff that we can be so obsessed with. To do the real work of being healed and, and, and working on our inside and, and help us to give other people the same grace, to, to afford other people the same patience. I pray that my family here would be a people who, who have empty tombs. When we look at the tomb, it's full of hope and resurrection. It's bursting out of it. Not just a physical, external veneer of, 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 of tidy and clean and shiny, but a cracked vessel who has the glory of God inside of us bursting out with a light that's undeniable. Jesus, we're just so proud of you. Showing us how much you love us. Even in this angle, this, this angle of sin and, and the atonement. We thank you so much for being who you are and everything you've done. Amen.